As you hear sounds coming up in your head, thoughts, you simply listen to them as part of the general noise going on, just as you would be listening to the sound of my voice, or just as you would be listening to cars going by, or to birds chattering outside the window. So look at your own thoughts as just noises. This is Billy Hansen, and welcome to another episode of Sauce Talk, a podcast about sports and the mind and trying to live well in general. Today's episode is going to be another chapter from my audiobook. It's going to be chapter 13, which is titled The Inner Game. And just a little bit of context so you'll understand what's going on. This is this chapter takes place in between the in between my junior and senior seasons in the summer before my senior season. I have just been granted the opportunity to remain on the team when the new coaching staff takes over. I had a tryout in the spring and Brady Bergeson decided to keep me on the team for my senior season. So I was really relieved heading into the summer that I was going to graduate without debt and without having to transfer. And while I was dedicated to doing my part to get ready for the season and bringing a great attitude to the team, I really didn't think I was going to have any success because my first three years were rife with so much failure. But as you'll hear in the chapter, I took a long break from basketball. I think it was like five weeks of a break from training in basketball. And I went to Peru with my friend Rio to volunteer for International Children's Network. And this break really changed my perspective on sports and my priorities and my senior season. And thankfully, I had brought some great books with me. My opa had actually given me some great books to read while I was in Peru. And so this chapter is really summarizing a shift in my mental frame about my senior season that took place in between my junior and senior seasons. So without further delay, here is chapter 13 of my new book. Chapter 13, The Inner Game. One, my relief at remaining on the team didn't have much to do with basketball. I was happy about graduating with a math degree and without student loans to worry about. Even though I was committed to bringing a good attitude to my senior season, I had little hope I'd earn significant playing time. I'd already begun thinking about life after basketball, which was why I accepted an internship to work for International Children's Network in Peru for the first half of the summer. One of my duties there was helping set up sponsorships for impoverished children so their basic needs, like warm clothing and school supplies, could be met. I also tutored children after school in math, writing, and English. The extreme poverty I witnessed was shocking and depressing. Beautiful children and their families crammed together in concrete caves, some of the parents reeking of alcohol. I connected with many Peruvian children who endured far more adversity than I'd ever faced and I felt uncomfortable for having been consumed with problems that didn't seem to matter much anymore. Seeing poor children manage to laugh, smile, and push forward, despite their sorry circumstances, put my own troubles into a clearer perspective, and I hope my work there helped them as much as it did me. In my free time, I became a tourist, backpacking into Colca Canyon and visiting Machu Picchu. 
It became the longest period of time since elementary school that I'd gone without playing basketball. Two, even though I'd almost given up hope of making the playing rotation, my extended break from basketball bothered me. I worried that my shot and ball handling skills would suffer and that the skill gap between my teammates and me would be wider than ever. Then I was surprised to find how helpful the extended break turned out to be. Ever since I was six years old, I'd been immersed in sports, always trying to improve. Sure, sometimes I'd take a few days off to go camping in the summer, but even then, the pressure to improve was always on my mind. Six weeks off from basketball gave me a healthy distance from the sport and allowed me to think about it more clearly. Chibai, Peru is a small town 12,000 feet above sea level. In my living quarters, there was no connection to the internet, which proved to be a blessing. Without the opportunity to train in basketball or hang out with friends or go to parties or scroll my phone, I found space to reflect on my athletic career and my life. For the first time in years, there were periods of time with nothing to do and no one to impress or report to. Before my identity shift as a sophomore, I'd rarely read the assigned reading in my classes or read anything worthwhile during my free time. I'd begun reading meaningful books as a junior, and in Peru, the obvious truth finally became clear. There are people who know a lot more about life than most of us do, and for centuries, they've been including their wisdom in books. I had plenty of time to read in Peru and had brought books with me that would prove to be transformative. I also spent time writing in a journal. Soon after I started writing, it became clear to me that what I truly wanted was to feel like part of the team and enjoy playing basketball again. I wanted to earn a spot in the rotation and play meaningful minutes in every game. When I accepted this, I started figuring out what I had to do to make it happen. I mapped out a training program for the rest of the summer. Up until then, my goals had always been vague, like wanting to play better or feel better. Now I had something clearly defined to aim at. Three. One of the sports books I had with me was The Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Galway, a tennis pro who became a trainer. He described many of my hang-ups on the basketball court with surprising clarity. He makes a distinction between self one and self two. Self one, the ego mind, is the part of us that's wrapped up in expectations, fears, worries, and stories about ourselves. Self two is the part of us that's intrinsically skilled, quiet, and confident. Self one is the thinking mind, Self two is the doing or being mind. He explains that for most of his playing career, self one dominated self two, and that the same was true for most of his students. As his training philosophy evolved, he began giving fewer directives to students, finding that explicit instructions about form and technique often influenced the players' thinking minds and ultimately got in the way. When he told the players to pay attention to their bodies on the court and simply let their bodies hit the ball, their strokes improved dramatically. His message made sense to me. Reflecting on my own athletic career, I remembered that my best performances came when I wasn't thinking about what to do next. I was relaxed and spontaneous and trusted that I'd know how to react when the moment came. My best shooting happened when I'd forgotten all about my form, and my hottest hitting streaks in baseball came when I forgot about my swing. I played my best when I wasn't consciously trying to. He argues convincingly that the secret to achieving these flow states is not by trying harder to play well, but by developing focus, concentration, and non-judgmental awareness. This is how an athlete trains in the inner game. Four, in American culture, and specifically American athletic culture, we're trained to label things as being either good or bad, 
and to chase after the good and stomp out the bad. As I grew up, I wore my self-criticism as a badge of honor. I thought that my athletic success was mostly due to my refusal to accept failure and then fight my way to success. When I didn't play well, I'd clap my hands together hard and say to myself and anybody listening something like, I can't make a fucking shot. When I played well, my ego swelled and I wanted everybody in the gym to know how good I was. Like many athletes, sometimes I hid my insecurities under a blanket of false confidence and self-praise. Galway writes, quote, The first skill to learn is the art of letting go the human inclination to judge ourselves and our performance as either good or bad. Letting go of the judging process is a basic key to the inner game. When we unlearn how to be judgmental, it is possible to achieve spontaneous, focused play. End quote. As I thought about his advice under the blankets in my chilly Peruvian hostel, I realized that somewhere underneath my self-criticism and pride was the quiet, sustainable confidence he describes. When I shot three-pointers alone in the gym, sometimes self-two emerged, and I could sink shots at a high percentage from all over the court. I moved from spot to spot with fluidity and ease, letting my body shoot. But when the bright lights came on and I was competing for playing time in front of coaches, self one took over, trying to control my play, afraid of making mistakes and desperate to do well. When I missed a shot, I was furious. And when I made one, I was proud. I thought about what it would be like to feel like I did alone in the gym in the face of pressure and competition. Five, as a player and coach, Phil Jackson won a total of 13 NBA titles, more than anyone else in history. He earned the nickname Zen Master for his uncommon approach to coaching, inspired by Zen Buddhism. Instead of standing up and screaming at his players and the referees during games, Jackson usually sat quietly on the bench as if he were a casual observer. Instead of calling timeouts to break an opposing team's momentum, he often let his players suffer a negative run while encouraging them to stay composed. His offensive system was much more team-oriented than the isolation styles popular in the league, and he trained his players mentally to protect them from the problems he'd face as a player. In Sacred Hoops, he writes, quote, When I was a player, not surprisingly, my biggest obstacle was my hypercritical mind. I'd been trained by my Pentecostal parents to stand guard over my thoughts, meticulously sorting out the pure from the impure. That kind of intense, judgmental thinking this is good, that's bad, is not unlike the mental process most professional athletes go through every day. Everything they've done since junior high school has been dissected, analyzed, measured, and thrown back in their faces by their coach, and in many cases, the media. By the time they reach the pros, the inner critic rules, end quote. A hyper-judgmental attitude is pervasive in sports, and I'd become one of the countless confused athletes who mistakenly viewed my judgmental mind as a virtue. Jackson encountered many coaches who adopted this spirit into their philosophies. They created rating systems that reached far deeper than conventional statistics, evaluating good or bad actions on the court and posting players' scores in the locker room as a way of incentivizing good actions. He writes, quote, That approach would have been disastrous for a hypercritical player like me. That's why I don't use it. Instead, we show players how to quiet the judging mind and focus on what needs to be done at any given moment. There are several ways we do that. One is by teaching the players meditation so they can experience stillness of mind in a low-pressure setting off the court. End quote. Six. Back in Oregon, I felt enthusiastic about basketball, 
The first time I walked into a gym, I experienced a deep appreciation for the beauty and sounds of the court. Even the simple rhythm of dribbling a ball was exciting, and my shot felt unusually smooth and rhythmic. The slight glitch that I'd been struggling with since my senior year of high school was somehow gone. The extended break had resulted in a necessary reset. It led me to believe that occasional time off from a sport can do an athlete more good than harm. Backpacking, experiencing a new culture, joining a meditation retreat, any of these can result in an understanding that might never occur to an athlete obsessed with incessant work and improvement. I had eight weeks before returning to Regis. During previous summers, I'd felt that the momentum of my training had often been interrupted. I love family camping trips, but I told my parents that Monday through Friday, I'd need to stay home so I could train. In the past, my training had also been stalled by the occasional night out with friends when I'd eventually find myself drunk at two in the morning and my only goal the next day was getting rid of an awful headache. So I let my friends know that I wouldn't be quite the same friend I'd been in previous years. Maintaining those boundaries wasn't easy, but it resulted in eight weeks of uninterrupted progress. Seven, Phil Jackson hired George Mumford to teach his players about meditation and how it relates to sports. And in Peru, I read Mumford's book, The Mindful Athlete. Jackson credits Mumford for being a critical asset during the Bulls and Lakers dynasties. He introduced mindfulness practices to Kobe Bryant, who became committed to meditation throughout his playing career. In his book, Mumford explains the Buddhist teachings about right effort and wrong effort as they relate to athletic improvement, beginning with an example from Greek mythology. In the myth of Sisyphus, Sisyphus's wrongdoings have landed him in an eternal hell, endlessly pushing a huge boulder up a steep mountainside. Every effort fails, and the boulder rolls back down the mountain, so Sisyphus has to begin again and again and again. Mumford writes, quote, The myth of Sisyphus has been interpreted in many ways, but for our purposes, let's just assume that Sisyphus is exerting wrong effort. He represents that part of our nature that's conditioned to believe that life is a grind and that to win, we have to fight our way to the top, focus on the destination rather than the journey, and swim hard upstream against the current even if that current loops us back through the same unending cycle of stress. Sisyphus lives in the land of extremes. In mainstream sports, this is essentially the familiar archetype of the forceful gladiator who must crush the opponent and win at all costs in an us-against-them world of high-stakes combat. Anger and or fear are what motivate action. There has to be either victory or failure, triumph or defeat. End quote. During my many hours in the gym at 8.30 p.m. as a desperate sophomore, getting shots up alone, dreading the upcoming 5 a.m. practice, I was Sisyphus in hell. I'd been persuaded by the ball is life crowd that in order to become and remain a great shooter, you have to get in 1,000 shots per day. Training has to be a struggle, something to fight and wrestle with. Supposedly, great shooters are often in the gym at 1 a.m. while everyone else is asleep. Stories about Kobe Bryant waking up his trainer to go to the gym in the middle of the night are well known amongst basketball people. But finally, I came to understand that my attitude toward my training was proof that I didn't think I was good enough. There was a false hope that if I just trained hard enough and outworked everyone around me, my reward in the end would be peace and confidence. Then I realized that to cultivate sustainable confidence and mental balance, you have to practice it in the present moment. Yes, sometimes you have to push through pain, discomfort, and exhaustion, but training in athletics doesn't have to be an unending and miserable struggle. 8. 
My eight weeks of training before returning to campus were much different than other years had been. Persuaded by Mumford, I adopted the mindset that three reps at game speed with clear focus and intention did more good than 100 reps with a clouded and distracted mind. My workouts became shorter and more intense and less stressful. When I focused hard on my mental training, beginning and ending each day with 20 minutes of meditation and visualization, the boundaries between my mental and physical training began to collapse. I became more concerned with my state of mind than with external results. I practiced what I'd learned from the inner game of tennis, non-judgmental awareness through concentration and simply paying attention to my body on the court. Non-judgmental awareness can be confused with detachment or not really caring what happens, but Galway makes a necessary distinction. Quote, by ending judgment, you do not avoid seeing what is. Ending judgment means you neither add nor subtract from the facts before your eyes. Things appear as they are, undistorted. In this way, the mind becomes more calm, end quote. As I went through my shooting workouts and when I played in open gyms, I still paid attention to the results of my shot, but my attitude toward the results changed. When I missed, instead of letting myself get frustrated, I simply noted in my mind, missed short or missed long or missed flat. When I made a shot, instead of swelling with pride, I made a note of back rim make or perfect swish. Then I tried to turn my attention to the next play. I wasn't always successful because my emotional state had been deeply conditioned to react strongly to unfolding results. But with time, I noticed my ego mind, self one, quieting, and the part of me that knew how to knock down shots, self two, starting to take over. Nine, during a layover in the Seattle airport, I thought I recognized a woman sitting a few seats away from me. We made eye contact and waved, and then I went over to sit next to her. It was Libby Edson, who lives in my hometown. She's the founder of YoMind, an excellent organization that now brings yoga and mindfulness education and training to kids and young adults across America. Libby knew me from high school, and she asked how my college career was going. When I told her that it hadn't been going very well, but that I'd begun meditating, she invited me to practice yoga and mindfulness with her over the summer. So I practiced yoga with her at least twice per week, and she helped me develop my mindfulness practice in conjunction with the yoga. Her patience and wisdom were invaluable. I stayed in touch with her throughout my senior season, and we've become good friends. My mental struggles on the court in college were due in part to my false perceptions regarding both activities and people. I waited for things to quote-unquote matter before I bothered trying to do my best. When there were people around that I wanted to impress, like my coach or the upperclassmen on the team or a pretty girl at a party, I felt intense pressure to perform, pressure that produced anxiety and self-doubt. Alone in my room with nobody watching, I often let myself slide into the modern mental fog of scrolling my phone for hours. I thought that if nobody saw me, it didn't matter what I did. One of the most important concepts that Libby emphasizes is this mantra, how you do anything is how you do everything. She encouraged me not to wait until I was on the court or the yoga mat or the meditation chair to cultivate mindful attention. She argued that it's a mistake to discriminate between activities and to try to turn our mindfulness practice on and off. Whether it's a hike in nature, a trip to the DMV, or a playoff game, we should do our best to cultivate mindful attention. When I understood that I couldn't simply turn on a healthy attitude in big moments, I began practicing healthy mental states for their own sake instead of as a means to attain external success and status. It became clear that how I behaved eating lunch in the cafeteria 
actually related to my mental state in the final minutes of a close game. 10. A few weeks before heading back to Regis, I'd enjoyed a meal with my grandparents. After dinner, Opa handed me a small hardcover book, tan with red trim. I opened it up to find the title, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Accustomed to flashy books with clickbait titles and subtitles, I found the simplicity of this book appealing. It looked and felt like something important. I soon learned that Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor in the second century who practiced Stoic philosophy. Meditations, not to be confused with meditation, as I've described it, is a collection of entries from his private journal, brief bits of advice to himself influenced by his Stoicism. As I read, I was surprised by the similarities between Aurelius's Stoicism and what I'd been practicing since my diagnosis as a sophomore. He focused on his own attitude, quote, seek what is in harmony with your own nature and strive towards this, even if it brings no reputation, for every man is allowed to seek his own good, end quote. He focuses on reducing self-serving desires and facing the uncertainty of the future with bravery, quote, no longer be pulled by the strings like a puppet by self-seeking impulse. No longer be either dissatisfied with your present lot or shrink from the future, end quote. He warns against worrying about the behaviors and opinions of others. Instead, we should focus on our own actions and character. Quote, How much trouble he avoids who does not look to see what his neighbor says or does or thinks, but only to what he does himself, that it may be just and pure. Or as Agathon says, look not round at the depraved morals of others, but run straight along the line without deviating from it. End quote. He constantly reminds himself of his own mortality that his time is limited. Athletes can benefit from his message by reminding themselves that their playing career is brief and that the end of a career is a kind of death. Quote, Do not act as if you would live 10,000 years. Death hangs over you. While you live, while it is in your power, be good. End quote. He believes that character is measured by where people place their attention. Quote, Your duty in the midst of such things is to show good humor and not a proud error and to understand that a man is worth just as much as the things about which he busies himself, end quote. Reading Marcus Aurelius, I understood that useful advice for athletes, for anybody, can come from long ago with origins in distant places. His guidance offered both psychological relief and an updated mental framework that helped me understand my final season. In the previous three summers, my return to Denver had always produced anxiety, Leaving the freedom and peace of my hometown for the pressure and stress of college basketball threw my mind out of balance. Before my senior year, I did my best to absorb what I was reading from Aurelius and what I was practicing on the meditation chair. I concentrated on my own attitudes and actions without shrinking from the uncertainty of the future. I boarded my flight to Denver with newly acquired peace and resolve. Throughout my senior year, I read a page or two of meditations every night before bed or whenever I felt I needed a mental course correction. Reading this passage before practices and games always helped point my mind in the right direction. Quote, Every moment, think steadily, as a Roman and as a man, to do what you have in hand with perfect and simple dignity and kindliness and freedom and justice, and to give yourself relief from all other thoughts. And you will give yourself relief if you do every act of your life as if it were the last, renouncing all carelessness and passionate resistance to the commands of reason, and all hypocrisy, and self-love, and discontent with the portion which has been given to you. 
You see how few the things are which a man needs to lay hold of in order to live a life which flows in quiet and is like the life of the gods. For the gods on their part will require nothing more from him who observes these things. End quote. All right, so from there, the story moves into my senior season and details my recovery and outlines how some of these ideas that I discovered in that summer took shape both on and off the court. So if you'd like to keep reading or keep listening, you should pick up a copy and click the link in the show notes or visit billyhanson.net forward slash book. Other ways to support me are to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And to stay in touch with my work, you should subscribe to my newsletter, which is billyhanson.net forward slash newsletter. Really appreciate you listening. Always feel free to reach out to me with any comments or feedback or suggestions. And I will see you here for the next episode. sauce.